I was at the grocery store the other day. I always give you reports of when I go to the store. By the way, I like going to the grocery store. It's like a puzzle that can be solved in, in less than an hour. You know, it's like hunting for clues in a, in a maze of aisles, and I will not be defeated. And you're thinking you ought to get out more, I know, but this is one of my rare times to get out. They sell donuts in there, too, by the way. That's where they keep them, so it's worth it. Anyway, I was watching this five-year-old yell at his worn-out mother with ever-growing intensity because he wanted something from the candy section. I was in a different line. We were all waiting, you know, for the, to check out, and it was right there where the cashier, you know, they keep the candy right there at eye level with the kids. It's not an accident, and it just kind of cascades down in rows of, of temptation for these kids, and he was upset. He was actually stamping his feet. His face was red. He was saying, I want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. Finally, she caved in and gave him the candy bar. Tired, she was embarrassed, and, and uh, you know what? He didn't even thank her. She didn't even make him try. He just grabbed it out of, out of her hand and you know, sort of huffed at her. So I left my cart, and I walked over there, and I grabbed him by the collar of his shirt, and I said, Young man, do you know what you ought to be saying to your mother right now? Well, I didn't do that, actually, but I wanted to, okay? I wanted to take his candy bar away from him and eat it right in front of his face. There's a dark side to me. I want you to know that. <laughs> Have you ever wanted somebody to say thank you? Have you ever wanted to make somebody say thank you besides your kids? Have you ever wished someone would say thank you to you? I remember reading about one guy who held the door for a woman so she could walk through, you know, in front of him. She refused to say thank you. Walked right through the door, kind of had her nose up in the air, you know. And then after she walked through, she turned to him and said with this kind of air of condescending ingratitude, you didn't need to hold the door for me just because I was a lady. He said, no, I held the door for you because I was a gentleman. <laughs> I want to use that line one day. I, I think that's great. The only thing is, guys, if you want to use the line, you got to hold the door too, right? Cicero, the Roman statesman and philosopher, said that there was one character trait that was not only the greatest of virtues, it was the parent of every virtue. He said it was gratitude. According to the inspired word, regardless of what others might say about it, it is indeed a quality that distinctively is intended to mark the believer from the unbeliever. In fact, Paul would write to Timothy that one of the marks of the unbeliever is that they are ungrateful. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. He even wrote to the Roman believers that an unthankful spirit marks kind of the bottom rung, among other things, of a culture that is digressing. They simply lose the ability to say thank you. Isn't it true that a mark of maturity and, and grace and civility? Isn't it true that that mark is gratitude? There's something unsettling about ingratitude. There's a void there. Sometimes you can even sense the pain in someone who doesn't receive it. 
someone not thanked in return for what they did. So how do we resist it? How do we respond to it when it lands on the doorstep of our hearts and lives? Both of those are addressed in this encounter that I want you to turn and look at with me. It's in the Gospel by Luke at chapter 17, and you actually hear a question related to the lack of gratitude. It's a, it's a question directed to our own hearts, by the way, as, as well. Luke 17. Look at verse 11. While he, that is Jesus, was on his way to uh, Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, before we go any further, let me take you back to this scene so we can better appreciate their desperate uh, situation. If you were writing the biography of a leper in this generation, you could easily entitle it with one word, hopeless. That would be fitting. The Greek term for leprosy was a broad term dealing with a a range of skin diseases, not just what we would call today Hansen's disease. Any kind of rash, any kind of skin disease would have immediately been inspected by uh, the priests. If leprosy was confirmed, the individual would have immediately been put out of society. He would have been put outside the village or the town away from any possibility of coming into contact in any way with uh, any other member of society, of course, including his own family. He would have effectively been banned from the fellowship of God by virtue of, in some way, having displeased God. And he would have lost all personal and and, uh, intimate contact with everyone Now, while by this time in redemptive history, leprosy wasn't necessarily the direct judgment of God, it was still considered so in Israel. And being reintroduced into society, should leprosy go into remission, and it could, it still required the affirmation and validation of a Jewish priest. In the meantime, a leper was banished from society. One author called it a social death sentence. We know from history, biblical history, that a leper couldn't get any closer to another human being than 50 yards. He would have said farewell to his wife. He would have watched his children grow up at a distance. He would have been unable to help his kids or his family, much less hug them. He literally lived 50 yards away from life, 50 yards away from relationships, 50 yards away from happiness, 50 yards away from fellowship. He would always be about 50 yards away from everything he longed for, everything he hoped for. And there would be no hope in sight. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote, that the leper in no way differed 
from a corpse. And he also wrote that the cure of a leper was considered tantamount to raising the dead. And everybody knew only God could raise the dead. And we just read, God just so happens to be walking by. Now Luke records here in verse 12 that they're standing at a distance. My guess is it's about 50 yards. And they're calling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I have no doubt that these lepers have already heard the story of that point in time, three years earlier, recorded in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus had healed another leper. Maybe, maybe he could do it again. Maybe it wasn't just an accident. Maybe he really did carry the power of God within him. And so they begin to call out and cry out. In fact, the mood of this imperative construction can be best expressed in our language with the simple word, please. So you have this, you have this begging, this, this ongoing repeating, lamenting, please, Master, please, Jesus, Please have mercy on us. Please. Jesus immediately responds to them. Notice verse 14 with a command. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now this is interesting. He didn't prescribe anything. He didn't prescribe medicine, some kind of washing. He didn't touch them. He didn't get near them. He didn't walk over to them. He didn't make them make some promises. He didn't make them repent. He didn't make them quote the Ten Commandments. He didn't make them get new clothes or get a haircut or brush their teeth or whatever. None of that. He simply said, go and see the priests. Now, at that point, they could have easily said to him, "Um, why would we do that? We're not allowed within 50 yards of of the priest. They can get leprosy too, you know. They're not going to be happy to see us. The only reason they would go to see a priest is if they've been healed. The priest would have offered ceremonial sacrifices. They would have been put on probation for eight days and then reintroduced to society. Leviticus chapter 14. But if you notice in your text, they're not healed yet. Jesus commands they go to the priest and they're still covered with leprosy. It's only when they obey, we read verse 14, but as they were going, they were cleansed. I love that. It's highly significant. They're in the middle of obeying his word, and while they're in the middle of obeying, they benefit from the power of his word. In other words, they're called by Jesus to exercise tremendous Faith in his word alone. And I couldn't help but ask, how about me? How about you? Do we act only when we see evidence? Or do we act out of obedience before seeing any evidence? Is our faith so strong that we will act on what God is saying even before we see any evidence of what God is doing. These ten did. In fact, all ten lepers are to be commended for trusting and acting on the word of Christ. 
Go to the priest. Why would we do that? We're covered with leprosy. Oh, he said, go to the priest. He commanded. So we'll go. And on the way, they are healed, and they probably can't believe it. Now, we're not told how far down the road they got before leprosy left their bodies. We're not told if it faded away as they walked. We're not told if they got 100 yards or 300 yards that it immediately disappeared. But we do know that at some point they realized that the leprosy was gone. They didn't have any mirrors, but they had each other, and they can see the effects on one another and certainly on, the, on, on, on their bodies. You would have at some point then seen them on that road begin to jump up and down, hug each other, you know, throw their hands in the air, maybe, maybe begin to weep, shout with joy because of what has just happened to them. And then you probably would have seen them not walking, but running as fast as they can to the nearest priest so that they can rejoin life. Warren Wearsby writes in his little commentary on this text, what they should have done is form an impromptu men's chorus <laughs> and come back and sing to Jesus. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You've healed all of our diseases. You have raised us up out of the pit. Now you might think we're being too hard on them to think they should all immediately return to thank Jesus. Jesus thought they should have, by the way, and we'll see that in a minute. But they didn't. Why not? Well, we're not told. But I've had a week to think about it. Let me give you some suggestions. Let's just use our imagination for a moment, shall we? I know we're in church, but let's use our imagination. We might discover something about ourselves. One of them might have been a literalist. You know, after all, Jesus said, go to the priest. He didn't actually ask for any expression of gratitude. I mean, if Jesus wanted to be thanked, he could have asked for it or at least arranged to walk over to where they were or make it clear that they were going to be healed. And, and then, you know, this, this is the kind of person who says, you know, I'm not going to spend time thanking people because, A, they're just doing their job. B, they should be willing to do it without being thanked. C, I'm paying for it in some way or another. And D, it's not a crime if I don't thank them. I'm following the letter of the law here. Jesus said, go to the priest. So I'm going to follow the letter of the law and miss the heart and spirit of the act. Literalism. Maybe another leper was a procrastinator who said to himself as he ran down the road, I'll come back tomorrow and thank Jesus. Maybe another leper was timid and introverted. And the last thing he'd want to do is go back to that village and the crowd that's no doubt now swarming around Jesus and, you know, make some exhibition and publicly express gratitude. That would be way too conspicuous and, and embarrassing besides look at my clothes and my, my hair and, you know, and maybe another time would be more convenient. Another leper might have just been an egotist. It's about time I got healed. I deserved it. Besides, it's all about me anyway. He should have. I had it coming. Another leper might have been a pessimist who said as he ran, you know, faster and faster down the road, I know I've been healed, but it probably won't last. <laughs> I've got to get to the priest quick. 
The other four lepers, maybe they were just conformists. Everybody else is going down the road. Nobody else except for one guy. I'm going to stick with the majority. It's thanking Jesus. Only one leper returns to thank this man who has effectively raised him from the dead. Verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. (laughs) I love the original language here. Glorifying God with a phone megale. We turn that around. Megale phone. Megaphone gives us the word megaphone. He pulls out the megaphone. And, and, and he praises God with everything he's got in him. Like the woman Pastor Charles Spurgeon was witnessing to in London, I read about recently during the 1800s, and as she began to understand the gospel, she began to get so excited about the prospect of what this all meant, and she said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, if Jesus Christ saves me, he will never hear the end of it. <laughs> the great... This leper is not going to let Jesus hear the end of it. He falls down, verse 16, look, on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. You see, earlier he's been giving thanks to God. He recognizes that Jesus, in his limited understanding, must be some representative of God on earth, tantamount to believing in the claim that he had already heard, no doubt, this is near the end of Jesus' ministry. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die, claiming him as his own Lord. Now, Jesus then asks a question. Three of them, actually. One right after another. Notice verse 17. Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner, this Samaritan? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Not only well physically, by the way, which comes and goes and eventually dies, but well spiritually, which never goes away and leads to eternal life where you do get a body that will never grow ill and fade away. By the way, would you notice Jesus did not say to him, stand up and go, your gratitude has made you well? Mm -mm. No, your faith. Your faith in me, the representative of God, the Messiah, has cleansed you now, not just of physical leprosy, but spiritual leprosy is far worse. Now, it would be easy at this point to say, wasn't that a wonderful incident in the life of Christ? Close our Bibles, go home. No. It would be easy to miss the pain in the voice of Jesus as he asks these questions. Greek scholars point out the fact that Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, asked these three questions, one after another, to underscore his Hurt. That's right. Is hurt. 
Were there not ten cleansed? The nine. Where are they? Can you imagine being one of those nine lepers? Finding out later Jesus asked where you were. Could it be that our Lord even now would remark about us? You know, they never seem to come back up the road and say thanks. It would be easy to miss some wonderful observations about how to respond to ingratitude. Can I point them out? Let me give you two of them, two observations of how Jesus handled the pain of ingratitude. First, he responded with genuine humility. Now, Jesus knew who those nine guys were, right? He knew who they were. He asked only to reflect, obviously, to others his humanity. He knew who, who they were. In fact, he knew where they were on that road. In fact, he could have waved his hand and said, well, if that's the case, you nine are going to get leprosy back. And, and, and as they ran, suddenly it's, it's back. In fact, you're going to get it back double. Jesus did not demand gratitude from them. He still acted on their behalf with grace, even though their ingratitude pained him deeply. If Jesus had a one-to-one system with us as well, you know, I'll do one thing for you if you thank me, and if I do one thing for you and you don't thank me, that's it for the day, we'd be in trouble. Instead, he daily loads us down with benefits, Psalm 68, verse 19. And we never even recognize half of them as we race you know, down the road, catching up to life. And those benefits that we do recognize, how often do we stop and turn them into professions of praise, which may be why we're quicker to pray for what we don't have than we are to praise him for what we do have. Which, if you think about the analogy of the lepers, would be tantamount to, to one of those lepers racing down the road and thinking, if the Lord really loved me, he would have given me new clothes because i got to see the priest, and he would have given me new sandals because this road is killing my feet. Jesus expresses incredible humility in helping nine lepers. And don't miss the fact that because he is God, he already knew they weren't coming back when he healed them. Incredible humility. It still hurt him, which makes his grace and humility even more precious. How do you respond to ingratitude like Jesus with great humility? Secondly, Jesus reveals a greater motive. Now, would you look a little more carefully and notice that Jesus never made a personal demand for anyone to actually thank him? Look again. Was no one found, verse 18, who returned to give glory to God? In other words, Jesus wants the Father glorified which is a greater and higher motive 
for anything you may do for someone in which you might have the return of gratitude or thanksgiving. In fact, when you don't receive it, those are times to check your higher motive, your greater motive. If we truly want God glorified by the good that we do, and we're to do good so that they will glorify our Father who who is in heaven, right? But if we really do want God glorified, we may be hurt and pained at ingratitude, but we did it for God, right? That's a little conversation you have to have in your mind. Why'd I do it in the first place? And the pleasure of serving God for the glory of God will then allow us to remain in the track on course, sustaining us, strengthening us, His Spirit encouraging us, even if nobody else does. How do you respond to ingratitude? How do you, as Martin Luther the Reformer, converted monk, centuries ago write, how do you learn to practice the virtue of suffering in gratitude? Like Christ. You observe him here responding with great humility and a greater motive. Well, let's flip the coin over. How do you resist becoming ungrateful? A spirit of ingratitude. Well, let me make two suggestions. First, take the time to think. Take the time to think. Instead of racing down the road as you constantly try to catch up to life, think, think. What has God done for me? What is God doing? Think about it. Regardless of evidence, either there's a lot of it or there's none of it, what might God be up to in my life? Think about it. Regardless of the obvious evidence, what might he be doing? Delight in attempting to identify his hand in order to praise him. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom told an incident that taught her about giving thanks in spite of evidence. If you know her story, you know that during World War II, she and Her sister Betsy were arrested and along with her family placed in Ravensbrück concentration camp. The barracks were extremely crowded, infested, she wrote, with, with fleas. One morning they read in their smuggled in tattered Bible from 1 Thessalonians the reminder to rejoice in all things. Betsy announced, well that must mean we are to thank God for the fleas. Corey replied, there's no way I'm going to thank God for fleas. So they had a little discussion there in the concentration camp on whether or not they would thank God for fleas. Betsy was persuasive, Corey wrote, and we ended up that day thanking God for the fleas, even though I wasn't sure why I would be thankful for them. It would be during the months that followed that we would discover that our particular barracks was left relatively free from the guards and we could do Bible study and talk openly and even pray without fear of interference. We learned 
It was a place of refuge for us only because the guards wanted to avoid the fleas. <laughs> Good, isn't it? Take some time to think what might God be up to in spite of the evidence. Secondly, take time to thank. Thanking requires thinking. Thinking takes time, and so does thanking. It takes time, doesn't it? A woman by the name of Frances Havergal jotted down every day on a little calendar. She kept something off and a little thing for which she would give thanks. She said it was her way of thinking and thanking. And in fact, it was her testimony that gave me this idea of an outline. It's a little wonder that she would write a hymn for the church that we're still singing more than 100 years later that goes like this. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days, let them, watch this, take my moments and my days, let them flow in what? Ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Thanking God takes time, and so does thanking people. Resist the undertow of ingratitude by thinking and thanking. Easy enough to remember? Our last assignment in our last discussion was to write down the name of one person for which you would begin praying, for whom you would begin praying for their salvation. I think our assignment from this study is fairly obvious. Let's think of one person or more to whom we should offer thanks. We can start with the Lord, of course. But when's the last time you've thanked your roommate or your friend or your husband or your wife, your parents, your children, your teachers, your pastor? I mean, start here. Just line up right down this aisle here and I'll wait. I mean, when's the last time you guys thanked your wife for dinner? <laughs> There's a great start. That's, a, that's an easy one, right? Honey, that was delicious. If it wasn't, honey, that was, that was unforgettable or something. <laughs> Sit down and write a note, send an email, send a text, tweet. Somebody who's con uh, you know, made a contribution in your life. You know, somebody from your past. Somebody from your present. Somebody who probably wouldn't notice that you noticed. Somebody who did something for you, but you knew they really did it for God. Someone who would probably be a little surprised to see you coming back up the road to thank them. Listen, if it encouraged the heart of Jesus Christ to hear it from this one, and if it pained him to not hear it, from the nine. Can there be any doubt how much good it will do each other? 
Let's be that one leper out of ten who begins with an appreciation that we have been brought from death unto life and begin to evidence this greatest, perhaps the rarest of all virtues developing a lifestyle that is quick to say thank you. Father, thank you for expressing to us in your word the humanity of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we're glad you asked this question. It's a challenge. It's an encouragement. It's an incentive for us to thank people. We certainly want to thank you for bringing us out of darkness into a marvelous light for raising us from the dead. We thank you.